As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. We are at Apollo HQ, and I'm pleased to say that joining us now is Mark Rowan, the CEO. Mark, good morning to you. Good morning, all. Great thank, to have. Thank you for coming. Great to be here, and great to have you with us. So oh, let's sir. just go straight to the top of this conversation: private markets versus public markets, and why you believe the big opportunity right now is in the former, and not the latter. Look, we've had a sea change, not just over a year, we've had it over 15 years. So much of our public markets are indexed and correlated. 80% of volume S&P 500, 60% of the market ETFs. 100% of our returns this year are from 10 stocks, which constitute 35% of the S&P, that traded an average PE of 50. How many of us come in every day looking to buy 50 PE stocks? Not many. And I guess what I'm suggesting to you is that if you, public markets, they're so correlated and indexed to interest rates and to money flows, that if you actually want alpha, alpha performance, you need to step away from public markets. And I think that's happening because we're also revisiting the notion of public being safe and private being risky. This is the framework we used to be in. Private meant venture capital, hedge funds, private equity. Now it just means less liquid. Is that not inherently a risk in your mind, liquidity? Liquidity is a risk to everyone, but in differing degrees. So if you are a retirement plan or a retirement system, you know your liquidity requirements for the next 10 years. So if you can get paid for illiquidity, why not get paid for illiquidity? If you're a wealthy individual, how many of them need 100% of their money on Tuesday? If they don't, they should get paid for illiquidity. And we're seeing that in the performance data. If you look at the active management, active management has failed to beat the index 85% of the time for 20 years. And I think it's going to get harder, not easier, to beat the index. As more and more of the market is indexed, very little money is left to actually Mm -hmm. make up what needs to be done in active management. What is the single operational distinction between Drexel, Burnham, Lambert, and your Apollo? What is the, the micro idea you can give us of then versus now? I'll... Not just, uh, I'll give you Drexel, I'll give you Lehman Brothers, I'll give you Bear Stearns, I'll give you SVB, I'll give you First Republic. The financial institutions tend to die of one of two causes, heart attack or cancer. Heart attack is funding risk. They borrow short and they lend long. Cancer is the slow addition of poor quality assets, which uh, over time undermine the system. So you look at all of those Mm -hmm. firms, all of those had an element of both heart attack and cancer. Funding risk as well as asset risk. 
you look at what we're doing. We are borrow long, borrowed long and lent long. Everything is matched. Everything is in a fund. There is no daily liquid, quarterly liquid money at Apollo. We are ideally situated to take advantage of less liquid assets. We've structured ourselves that way. And then you look at the totality of what we do. Um, equity is a risk business. Equities go up and down every day. You can lose money in public equity. Really? You can lose money in private equity. In the credit business, the vast, vast majority of what we do is private investment grade. Mm -hmm. When I look at the risks out there and to translate it into Nassim Taleb and all the work he did in Quant with Black Swan. What are the tail risks you see right now for private equity? I mean, are you hedged perfectly? Is, is there next to no delta where you feel so comfortable? Or are there actual tail risks at Apollo? I don't think there are tail risks, and I don't think there are tail risks in private equity. I think private equity is a risk-taking activity. But each of the companies, each of the situations is idiosyncratic onto itself. Um, and over time, private equity has proven to be a very good asset class, recognizing that in certain markets you will lose money, just like in certain public markets you will lose money. Well, you had a test here with the way interest rates went. You had a four, five, six standard deviation shock. How did your risks perform given the shock of higher rates, the, the, the glide path of that? How was it along the way? Uh, single best year in Apollo's history. Earnings, asset performance, the, our platform, if you think about it, we are around 650 billion of assets under management in our asset management business. 500 billion of that is credit. We generally benefit from rising rates. Yes, on the equity side, some equity will be worth less than it was, but as a general rule for Apollo, credit rates going up is very strong. On the retirement services side of our business, which is the Athene business, just gone through the roof. Athene is up 30% year over year. So I'm going to steal a page from this guy because he's been talking about Ozempic a lot. And honestly, I think that it's important for us to talk about. Are you telling me something that no, I No, absolutely to not. And I don't think that. He's suggesting that I'm on Ozempic. Please continue. I'm not saying that anyone is on Ozempic. We're talking about this as a game changer potentially. <laughs> no one here is on Ozempic and we're not making any, not that there's anything wrong with it. Whatever, let's move on. Here's this question about how much that transforms life expectancy, how much that transforms some of the investment thesis from your perspective and for retirement. Look, o o over time, you would expect improvements in healthcare, improvements in health technology to improve life expectancy, but not by all that much. We tend to find other things that are bad for the human body. <laughs> as, as one thing does not uh, kill us, another thing does. So I, but I would expect the trend to continue. We are, just to be clear, we are not in the insurance business. We are, in, we are an insurance company that is in the retirement services business. We make money by guaranteeing people's retirement, and we earn money by earning more on our assets than we pay out on our liabilities. Very little exposure to longevity or any other what you would consider biometric or typical insurance risk. There's a real question here and a real focus on income, and you've been talking about that, how there is risk in equity, but not necessarily the same type of thing uh, that you see in credit. And we just saw credit outperform, private credit outperform private equity pretty meaningfully. Are you going to shift away from private equity more and more and just focus purely on the more credit business? No, this is the answer, but we have to step back and go back to what our business is. Our business at Apollo, and for most people in the alternative asset management industry, we're not in the asset management business. We're in the excess return per unit of risk business. And then I ask myself, where can we get excess return? Well, in equity, we've gotten to 150 billion. Is it gonna grow? I think it will grow. Will it grow multiples? I don't think so. 
I think the nature of the business, if we're true to ourselves of just focusing on excess return, is slower growth. I look at the credit business. The credit business is nearly 500 billion today. We're not relevant. In the scheme and the scale of these markets, 500 billion is not a relevant sentiment. I assure you, when you speak to all the big bank CEOs today, they don't wake up every day wondering what the mighty Apollo is doing. There's a phrase I've used twice already this morning in the last 40 minutes, one hour, debanking. And every time I've used it, I've had pushback around this table. Why don't we like that phrase, debanking? I personally like that phrase. Uh, Jim Zelter will it'll cost me $20 for just saying the word debanking, but I'm happy to pay it. <laughs> uh, I think the world is debanking. And I say it this way. Every economy, every regulatory scheme, credit is tied to GDP. And regulators have only two choices as to where credit comes from. It can come from the banking system or it can come from the investment marketplace. There's no third choice. And everyone around the globe has made a different decision. But if you look at the trend, with the exception of China, everywhere in the world, regulators are favoring investors over banks. That does not mean we're going to see a sun shift. That does not mean the banking business is going out of business. On the margin, though, the growth is going to take place in the investor marketplace rather than in the banking system for good and valid reasons and for regulatory choice, not because the banking system is unsafe. So given that, you said you don't see a lot of upside in terms of growth, tremendous amount of growth in the equity side. You said you're relevant with $500 billion. How big, how relevant could you become? Well, I, I sat next to a senior executive from BlackRock last night at dinner, and they had food in front of them, and I had no food. And I said, how, how big do you have to be to get food in front of you? And he said, $10 trillion. So that's what you're aiming for, $10 trillion? No, is that what you're I, saying? Look, for us, <laughs> th for us, this is about excess return per unit of risk. Our business plan calls for a doubling of our business. And at the end of the doubling, liking who we are as a culture, our limiter is not capital raising. Our limiter is not size of AUM. Our limiter is making sure we get excess return per unit of risk, so finding assets and making sure we like our culture at the end of the day. And we all bring to this our childhoods. My childhood was a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant grandmother, John after her third scotch, who would talk about how Jews couldn't go to a certain school in Massachusetts. Most of them ended up at Lisa's University of Chicago. That was a different battle. Now there is a new battle, and we address this with Mark Rowan. I am stunned at what I see at these schools and particularly at your University of Pennsylvania. You've been vocal. What is the dialogue you're having right now with the leadership of University of Pennsylvania as they deal with this new anti-Semitism? Um, there, there's no dialogue with leadership. At the moment, leadership is uh, on their way or in D.C. for a series of congressional hearings. But the underlying culture that permitted this to happen is just so strong. And until there is a moment of self-reflection where we're not dealing with just anti-Semitism, we're dealing with the culture that allowed this to happen, there really is going to be no progress. And to date, there's been no progress. So what is progress, right? Because there's a real question around free speech versus something else. What is the something else that you're looking for some of these universities to target? This is really not a question of free speech. This is a question of favored speech and disfavored speech and an institutional psychology and an institutional culture. So there are places where this is modeled and they're getting it right. For instance, University of Chicago. University of Chicago, Chicago is getting it right. They are kicking Penn's butt to be candid. And it's not that hard. The institution has decided that it is institutionally neutral 
and that the students and professors and other actors on campus are allowed to have opinions and to speak their opinions within respectful ways. Say what you will, say what you want, allow the other side to speak. That is a culture of free speech. A, a culture where you shout people down, where you have 95% of the professor or academia speaking in one way, where you permit violent protests, where students aren't able to go to class because there's boycotts, or there's pressure or other things, is not a culture of free speech. How do you understand the increase in anti-Semitism on the left, which has really polarized, frankly, the Democratic Party and created a lot of uh, sort of soul searching? Look, th this is a long time coming, but I'll start with history. Um, the definition of anti-Semitism, the modern definition, the IRA definition, includes anti-Zionism as a form of anti-Semitism. This got through the Senate, with many of the current senators still there, 99 to 0 including most of the most progressive uh, democratic centers. So what we've seen is we've seen a shift in the mood of the populace, particularly on university campuses. We live in a culture on these university campuses of simplicity. You are oppressed or you are an oppressor. If you are oppressed, it does not matter what you do, you can do no wrong. If you are an oppressor, facts be damned, it does not matter what you do, you can do no right. In that kind of mindset, it does not surprise me that anti-Semitism, anti-Zionism has taken hold. And if you give historical context, go to the Holocaust. You have dehumanization, you have delegitimization, and then you ultimately have genocide. Now you apply that to anti-Zionism, you have dehumanizing of Israelis and Jews, you have delegitimizing of Israeli and Jews, and now with Hamas's attack, you have the beginnings of killings. It's not that hard to see where we are. What all the, the only thing that's hard is for the left to recognize it. I have been surprised that people have been so surprised by where some of these campuses are at. And I think about the amount of tremendous philanthropy that have come from people like yourself over the years on these campuses. I do wonder why we allowed it to come to this mark, why it got this far, when we've seen this been building for, for years and years and years through a whole generation. The answer, I believe, is a slow build. And it ultimately comes back to governance and leadership. If I speak just about University of Pennsylvania, the governance is actually divided between the faculty and the trustees. Except for the last 25 years, only one of those two groups has been doing their job. And I put myself in the camp that did not do their job. I was a trustee for a long period of time. The trustees have a very important role to play in setting the strategic direction of the university, permissible and impermissible. Where we want to go, except it's not a governing body. 47 trustees really can't agree on anything. It's not set up to govern. There's no history of govern. And so in the absence of any leadership, faculty or administration has taken these universities in direction that the alumni do not recognize. When you have a John Huntsman, a Ronald Lauder, a Cliff Asnes, and 7,000 other alumni who for their own reasons, their own political persuasions, their own belief system, all don't recognize the university that they loved, you have a problem. So first move is to stop donating, I guess. We could disengage, walk away. You seem to be more constructive about the prospect of change here. You think there is a better path ahead. I think the worst thing that can happen to these universities is apathy. Right now, there's not apathy. Donors are engaged. They want change. They love the place. This goes on much longer. I think we will get to apathy. And once we get to apathy, I don't think the universities can recover from this. And unfortunately, all university presidents that I'm aware of, particularly at the University of Pennsylvania, they seek to wait this out. Maybe this will go away. I won't have to deal right. with this. That is actually a loss. 
They haven't internalized that that's a loss, but that is a loss. There's an understanding, there's a woke adjustment going on right now. We see it in Hollywood, the collapse of many Disney movies and others that have certain messages that aren't selling to the public. The FT has an article on uh, your colleagues at BlackRock on ESG and how there's a woke adjustment in ESG. How's this going to adjust the wokeness of these universities? How will it adjust? Look, this is a question ultimately of balance. This is not a question of a pendulum swing all the way back. But right now, these universities are out of balance. And I believe that the trustees, the alumni, and by the way, many of the faculty, if we read Bill Ackman's letter yesterday and the experience I'm having at the University of Pennsylvania is word for word the experience that Bill Ackman is having at Harvard. Professors don't want to be muzzled anymore. They feel that they can't speak out unless they are conforming to the narrative of the university. And the resentment is building. All we've done, all I've done, all Bill has done, is given people an opportunity to speak their minds. And guess what? They have a lot to say. Big election next year. Let's finish on that. Is this going to change how you approach US politics, who you would endorse for 2024? No, it's not going to change. Do you have a favorite candidate? No. It's hard to believe with 350 million people in this country that we're down to two. You disappointed with these two? Personally, I'm disappointed. What is it about these two that you find so disappointing? Look, we, we, are, we, are in the, we have the single best hand of cards anywhere in the world. We have it all. We just play this hand poorly. What does that mean? Think about it. People want to come here. We have an incredible knowledge base. We have abundant energy. We're leaders in technology. We have a massive domestic market. We're the strongest military power. And yet, we have challenges that we have not been able to, as a result of lack of leadership, as a result of political consensus, to address. We have a retirement crisis. We have a healthcare crisis. We have a budgetary crisis. We are inconsistent to our allies around the world. We have important decisions to make without weighing in mm -hmm. as to what's going on in Ukraine and what's going on in the Middle East, all of which seems to be caught in a little bit of a morass. Is United Nations experience important for a presidential candidate? United Nations, no. Okay, I was trying to get him to... That was delicate. It was delicate. <laughs> that was delicate. <laughs> that was a sensitive side. I, I thought I responded delicate. <laughs> yeah, I think that was perfect. <laughs> Mark, thank you. Thanks thank you for having you. us. It's good to catch up. Total pleasure. Thank, thank you. Thank you very much. Mark Robin there, the CEO of Apollo. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Jim Zouter <laughs> joins us now, the co-president of Apollo Global Management. Jim, good morning to you. Good morning and uh, welcome to Apollo. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. I price, said, the coffee's good and the price the, is even better, the, right? The coffee's good and the price is free and we like that. 
You like that, that you, right, Tom? They have a tip jar. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> you put money in. Yeah. Well, this is he called. This is the, uh, you, you're you're making uh, the show today from our Contrarian Cafe. So we welcome you. Nice. And you have a great lineup this morning. So we're excited to have you here and tell 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 you more about our story. That great lineup begins with you. I mentioned a little bit earlier. There is a call on the cycle that we can talk about. There's also a call on the industry. Let's start with the industry. That phrase I mentioned moments ago, debanking. Perfect place to start. What is debanking, and what does it mean for you and the team? Well, you know, I don't use that term. I, I really use the evolution of finance. Um, the reality is that we, in the last 40 years, we had amazing uh, tailwinds with globalization and technology and lower rates. Uh, banks became, they were, they were advisors for, for decades. Uh, in the 90s and the 2000s, they became large global institutions. 0809 happens, and there's a tremendous amount of legislation, Dodd-Frank, to change their business model, but at the same time, rates were lower. Uh, and in the last 15 years, CEOs, the CEOs you're going to have on today from Wells and from other places, they're focused on ROE and their shareholder return. And as they're focused on ROE and shareholder return, there's a massive gap where companies need to find capital. And firms like Apollo, we've been at the front of the front of the uh, parade in terms of providing capital across our business. Um, and when you put that together with our funding model of LP capital from around the globe, plus our retirement services, we're just a very unique player in that's going on. We've got to get into how big the addressable market is and sure. what are private markets. Sure. Typically, we think of leverage finance. Mark Rowan, your colleague, who we'll catch up with a little bit sure. later this morning, talks about basically everything that's on a bank balance sheet. How big is this going to be? You know, when, we, when most people talk about, and you did a great job right there talking about private capital and private markets, most people when they talk about private credit today, they talk about direct origination, which is about a trillion five. It's about a third of the high yield and loan markets. We think the definition of private capital and private credit is around a 40 trillion number. And that would consist of, you know, solar finance, inventory finance, trade finance, uh, franchise finance, along with a lot of this corporate lending and investment grade privates that a lot of banks used to hold large chunks on their balance sheet. But again, in their search for ROE and appropriate returns, they're not the right place to hold that. They may be the right place to originate it, but they're certainly not the right place to hold it long term. In our three hours with you, I think I, I want to get out of the way right away the stereotype that it's highfalutin, fancy derivatives, fancy structures, mezzanine. Everybody walks around and says mezzanine. So we have mezzanine coffee. Everyone? We have mezzanine Danish. But the reality is it's shockingly conservative. On your website, you lead with retirement services. How conservative, how measured, how prudent is Apollo? Well, at the end of the day, we do not like to lose money, and that even means a penny. Um, the reality is, if you look at our firm today, $630 billion, uh, about $100 billion in private equity, about $100 billion in real estate and infrastructure, $400-plus billion in credit. A vast, vast majority of that is investment grade. And in this year alone, whether it's Air France, Venovia, AT&T, we're loaning money to great companies that are a lot of them are investment grade. And it's interesting, you know, you talk around the globe right now in the last six, seven weeks, you know, buying investment grade debt of companies like Merck and Meta and many, many others, you've been making a double digit return between the compression of spreads uh, and otherwise. Now that's in the public markets, but back to the private credit, to your point, 
we, we lend to large companies, mostly investment grade. And for our perspective, back to Jonathan's question, it's not a one and a half trillion opportunity, it's really a 40 trillion opportunity. So let's talk about where we are. You said yeah. you don't like to lose a penny, and yet you've been focused on investment grade, which is underperformed yeah. high yield. Yeah. Risk has done a lot better than lower risk securities. Yeah. Where are we in terms of where you can make the most money? Is it still an investment grade, despite where we are right now? Well, it's, a, it's in higher quality credit. The reality is there's still this debate, and you'll have it with Torsten later on, soft landing, mm -hmm. hard landing. Uh, your friend, Mr. Slock. But the reality is the economy is, we're sort of a little bit in this interesting Goldilocks period right now. Um, concern about a slowdown has been on everybody's mind the last six, seven months. Fed's actually done a really nice job of maintaining higher rates. So I would argue that the Fed put its order back in the market right now. And the reality is you can make, as people are worrying about soft and hard landing, in credit, you've been making double-digit returns in the last six to nine months. So the Fed put us back. We can't let that go. What exactly does that mean? Does that mean that we're not going to have the same kind of credit cycle that now you are a believer no, in I, soft landing? I, I, I think what you're going to see is you're going to see an economy that there's going to be winners and losers, certainly like in inflation. Uh, you're seeing it right now in the goods section, goods area, where goods prices are lower but services are a bit higher. And I'm just saying as the, as the economy is, is navigating what's going on right now, the Fed has maintained a fairly high rates. The, the market's gotten ahead of it, if you will. And if there were any kind of challenge economic backdrop, the Fed does have a loaded gun that they can use as needed and as appropriate. I'm not assuming it's going to happen. I think you're going to see what we're all expecting, you know, we're students of history, we expect to happen in 08 to happen again. Right. I don't think you're going to see that happen right now. I think the actual reality is the banking system in the U.S., the envy of the world is actually quite robust. There are signs of the economy that are a bit more challenging. There are a lot of buyouts that have been done that will have a challenging time. But you're just going to have to navigate it with a really broad toolbox. You mentioned the history. On an almost cultural basis, one of my themes is we had 73-74, Pittsburgh rolled up. You and I lived it in western New York. And the bottom line is then we had 77, a second leg of a great bull market starting into the 82 expansion. Is that the analog right now, that after the gloom of the pandemic and the churn, that there's something new here, constructive. Well, there's no doubt in the, you know, if you talk about those, those four uh, tailwinds that I talked about, globalization, lower rates, deregulation, the fourth is technology. And there are those who know a lot more about it than I do, but they would argue that we are on the precipice with what's going on with AI, cost structure, education, and the breadth of that, that that could have a huge impact. But the reality is the cost of capital is going to be higher for the next five or seven years. We are in a higher cost of capital environment, and it's how you navigate. And back to your original question, like the reality is the bank, the banking system around the globe is evolving. The U.S. is in the front of that. And as you'll hear about this morning, we think we're a, we are the player as that industry continues to evolve. We've got to set it up for the rest of this morning. There will be people at home asking this following question, so help us answer it. Are we not just transferring the risk from banks and the risk they pose to the economy to places like this? Well, we're actually taking the risk that was consolidated on a bunch of financial institutions and bringing it to a much, much broader system where we're diversifying that risk. Because our investors, at the end of the day, are either sovereign or other pension funds that don't own these assets on leverage or their other retirement services. So we're, we're, we're going higher quality assets and we're diversifying the risk of the system. It's actually making the system less risky. Jim, this was awesome. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Well, welcome today, and we look forward to a great morning. It's going to be fantastic. Jim's out to there of Apollo it's Global great. Management.
Joining us now, someone you are very familiar with, Torsten Slock, of course, holding court at Deutsche Bank for years, dragged over to Apollo to provide economic uh, wisdom, and we're thrilled that he would host us here uh, today. Nice coffee. We're coming next week. You have one single sentence in your report. This time around, it's not the Friday jobs report. It's the Thursday Friday jobs report because the optimists are hanging on claims. How important are claims? Well, that's really a critical question when it comes to this uh, employment report on Friday for November. Jobless claims has been surprisingly resilient for a very long period now. It, it's beginning to look more not like a soft landing or hard landing, but more like a long-term landing. We're waiting more and more and more for any evidence of either a sharper slowdown or an acceleration. And what we do have on the labor market on the slowdown side is, as we'll get today, the JOLTS data has been showing the quits rate mm-hmm. has been coming down, meaning the number of p- people who voluntarily quits their jobs has been declining. The number of job openings has been coming down. The work week has been coming down. Wages for job switches relative to job stayers has been converging. In other words, you no longer have as much bargaining power if you change jobs. Combined with the number of people who are changing jobs uh, for permanent reasons has also been changing. So the conclusion is we still have more and more evidence pointing in the direction of the labor market softening. One indicator jobless claims, yes, still good. But basically everything else is pointing in the direction of what you would expect, namely a weaker labor Okay, I want a single point non-farm payrolls estimate, but they won't serve me the bacon John was talking about. So let me go to this. Is the whisper number finally turning towards it's a look down a set what is it John 188,000 we're at that's consensus maybe yeah. an estimate yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, that includes the, the whisp- UAW uh, which is about 30 but is the whisper right? number coming down instead of going up this time well around? if you really back up and think about what's going on the Fed hiked rates in March of 2022 and your textbook would tell you when you raise interest rates you should expect to see consumption begin to slow down capex spending begin to slow down credit growth from the banking sector begin to slow down and all those things are happening and all those things should also be expected to hit in particular, lower rated credits, smaller companies, middle market companies, and that's exactly where you're beginning to see signs of weaker labor demand. So you should expect to see non-farm payrolls over the next several months do what the Fed is expecting it to do, namely gradually be softer and softer. Is this labor market right now, and this is a nil data question over at Remmac, is this labor market right now less of a reason to be hawkish at the Federal Reserve, even if we are printing? <coughs> 200k on payrolls. Well, as Jim was saying earlier, the Fed put is back because think about it, we have now a situation where the market is spending so much time on the Fed's minuscule small changes in their communication and if the Fed is now beginning to say, well, we still don't think that we are there yet, the market says, well, okay, we are there yet and you will come to that conclusion. But we've had that pivot so many times and it remains to be seen whether that pivot this time is right. But the way I think we should be looking at it is in the dual (coughs) mandate, should we be focusing on inflation or employment? Inflation is moving in the right direction. Employment is moving gradually in the right direction. But if the labor market does start to have more than a soft landing, then we will certainly have a sentiment change in markets. So I never thought that I'd get to the place where Torsten Slock and Ben Laidler would agree. I think of you as a perennial pessimist. I always open your uh, your the, emails that I kind of enjoy. No, I actually we enjoy about it. Risks it contra- exactly. So you're worrying about risks and you're pointing to oh all these God, risks. Irresponsible. And then Laidler. you say, you know, there's a Fed put. So does that mean that Goldilocks is back on the table? Well, but the issue here is that the market has been interpreting the Fed in so many different ways for the last year, and the Fed pivot has come, I mean, seven out of the last nine times, as you will, so a variant of the old joke of how many times can you come with the same story that now is the time, now is the time for the Fed to turn dovish, but they haven't turned dovish, and I think that's why we will have rates higher for longer. This is good for fixed income. This means that the front end of the curve should be still cutting coupons in terms of thinking about what is the overall outlook. It's going to take time before we get inflation 
inflation under control. And I think that process, right. meaning into next year, still means that the downside risks to the outlook continues to be very pronounced. I got a question. Jim from Rochester, thanks so much for watching uh, today. Torsten, I'm going to cut to the chase. There's nonlinearities out there. Along the curve that Chairman Powell looks at, where's the biggest potential nonlinearity? Is it wicked short like Apollo short-term paper? Or is it 10, 20-year French paper, 30-year, 40? Is it the Austrian piece? Where's the, where's the stress? I would look at this from a macro perspective, that the Fed has high rates. We're seeing delinquency rates going up on credit cards, on auto loans. In There's a brand, that's a slot brand. We're also loads. seeing the default <clears throat> rates going up on high-yield loans. It's been going up quite quickly in the last six months. You're also seeing the bank credit growth slow down quite substantially. Taking those things together, all that so far looks like a soft landing, uh, but again, as I said, it's more been a long landing here, but the bottom line still is to your question, the risk is if people wake up suddenly in the next few quarters and say, wow, maybe there's more downside risk to consumption because the hit is not only from interest rates going up, if people also start losing their jobs and the labor market soften, which is what the Fed has been talking about, we get the double whammy of both high interest rates hanging in there at the same time while the labor market finally softens, which is what the Fed has been waiting for for so long. Okay, pause. Because in the last week, we've just had record spending, Black Friday online, Cyber Monday. Oh, that was online. Busiest day on record in US airports. And then buy now, pay later underpinning Is that a lot good of that news growth. or bad news? That's what I want to ask okay, you. Okay, so remember, Do you want to go sit by Bramble? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> roughly half of the population has used buy now, pay later. And that number has just continued to go up in the last several months. So you begin to think about, well, is that a sign that they can't get credit elsewhere, even on their credit cards? For so I bought Rangers tickets with buy now, pay later. I know. Well, that's, you're probably part of that half that has used it. But I'm just saying that <laughs> the conclusion is that we're getting to the, to the bottom line here that people are getting stressed more on the household side. Savings are mainly with the middle and high income households. Low income households are getting more and more pressure, in particular when it comes to the linkage rates. So that's, of course, implying that we will see more downside pressure on consumers over the next several Maybe quarters. this might be just the beginning of the consumer levering gap. Why isn't it that? Well, because the backdrop here is that the Fed is not going to cut rates anytime soon. So if the cost of financing stays high, or in Fed language, you will appreciate this, we will be above our star, which is two and a half for a very extended Where's period. Where's the new R star? Come on, what, what so, do we got, 12 seconds? We've so, got about Williams, a minute left. Williams and Laubach would say okay. they have a methodology of two and a half percent. So what do you think line, I would, Well, I would go with the Fed line here and say two and a half percent. And if you had five and a half, we will have restrictive monetary policy Can for at least a few more years. So to Jonathan's question, that means that consumers will be under pressure, okay. potentially for a few more years. A guy yesterday said, he was at some German bank, he said ECB is going to go first. What's a Bundesbank going to tell Lagarde when she decides to cut? That's a real uh, wrestle inside the ECB at the moment. But the ECB will go first. But it's very clear that uh, different ECB government <clears throat> council members are showing up at the meeting and, and have probably having different wish lists. Yeah, the Federal Reserve's on the same page maybe right now. I, I don't know about so. the governing council so. over the ECB. Right. Torsten Slock there of Apollo. Torsten, right. thank you. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. 
Olivia Wassner joins us now, head of sustainable investing for Apollo, again, from COP28. Olivia, thank you so much for joining us. A big splash in the FT is they really go after ESG and say, is this all going to work out? And part of it, and this goes to the investment of Apollo in sustainable investing, it's you can make money at ESG. You can make money and profit with sustainable investing. Is that what Apollo's witnessed with your investments? Have you seen money being made by being sustainable, by doing the things COP28 is talking about? Absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Thank you for having me in from Dubai and from COP28. I'm I'm thrilled to be here and and also be able to beam into Apollo this morning. Um, Absolutely, that is what we are seeing with our investments. So if we look at the capital we have put to work over the last five years into sustainable investing themes, the firm on a whole has put about $31 billion to work. And that was really across the entire platform. That was in real estate, that was in infrastructure, that was in credit, that was in private equity. And and all of these deals were done in in regular funds. These were done in funds that had return targets, and we saw great opportunities to make money for our investors, to meet the return targets of the funds, while also investing in businesses and in products and projects that are actually very much contributing to the clean transition, the energy transition, how we think about sustainable resource use going forward. Olivia, if you look at COP28 and on to 29 and 30, are the financial discussions of Apollo and other good and worthies, the great and the good, if you will, are they being overwhelmed by major polluters, the United States and also China, for example, on coal? So first of all, one of my biggest surprises of COP28 so far has been that it is not all doom and gloom. Um, There is a lot of really good news coming out of COP. You had 120 countries uh, commit to tripling the amount of renewable generation uh, by the end of the decade. That's massive if you think about it. Um, We've had just so many positive announcements around capital going into the transition from all different areas of the world. One of the things that has really struck me is just the amount of capital that's really being mobilized, the ambitious uh, commitments that folks are are, are really setting here, and and how excited everyone is. You know, if you look at historical cops, um, as we think about, you know, 28, 29, 30, um, the makeup of who is here has really changed. So when I was walking around yesterday, you know, instead of seeing just nonprofits and government officials, um, you, you see people from law firms, from investment banks, from asset allocators, asset managers, uh, consulting firms. It really is amazing to me just how many people are here and how many people are really thinking about how does climate finance affect what they do? How does it affect their businesses? What are the opportunities that are coming out of this? You know, both for the financial institutions like Apollo as well as our corporate partners. Olivia, I've got to be—I've uh, got to be honest. I was surprised also about just the degree of optimism, considering how much pessimism there is around the ability to reduce the increase in the climate by two degrees uh, Celsius. Given that, how much are you looking to invest in things like carbon capture and other measures that go against just simply reducing emissions? Yeah, absolutely. So. 
Um, so listen, we have a big challenge ahead of us. And if you look at the amount of capital that needs to be spent you know, over the next 30 years, it, it's massive, right? You know, we're looking at somewhere between five and six trillion dollars a year of capital that needs to be spent. Um, Apollo is very much looking at what we want to do on our end and how we really want to lean into, into financing this transition. Um, so we've set a couple targets for ourselves. We set a target of 50 billion by the end of 2027, and we set a target of 100 billion uh, by the end of 2030. Um, so for us, we're really looking at big numbers into this space. And when you look at what we've done historically, again, 31 billion over the last five years, it, it has been a tremendous amount of capital. And I talk to my peers here. I talk to financial institutions. I, I talk to other folks who are here. And what you're really seeing is there's just so much capital being uh, really being mobilized here uh, at the corporate level as well. I think the world has realized we do need to decarbonize, and now we're looking at what is the best way to do it and how do we get the right pools of capital into it. Do you feel that people are losing enthusiasm a little bit? We've seen some of the backlash, and Tom was just talking about how there is this rethink. Have you seen any of that backlash in terms of just a halting in institutional enthusiasm? I, you know, I, I haven't really. Um, certainly, you know, uh, you read the papers and it, there, there, is, there is certainly some backlash. But on a whole, I just think, you know, if you look at the quantum of people who are here, at the number of businesses, at the number of corporates, I mean, there's just so much really good energy around this event. And folks are really looking at, you know, what can they do? How can they do it? How can they best finance it? Where are the gaps? You know, we've had a lot of discussions over the last couple days about, about the missing middle, right? How do we get to this scaling up? Part, you know, there's been a ton of capital that has gone uh, into the venture capital and growth equity part of the value chain. And we've got capital that's gone really into the infrastructure. So when you have fully de-risked investments, but how do we find that part in the middle where you've got, you know, you've got technologies and companies that are proven, uh, that are working, but that just need a little bit of help to kind of get to the next level. Um, we see that both in individual companies um, as well as, you know, it might be corporate carve-outs of, of much larger companies. It may be green financings for a larger company. There are so many opportunities here to really help fill that gap. And I'm excited about what Apollo's doing here. I'm also excited about what I'm seeing so many of my peers do here. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, Tune in and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. The countdown has begun from May 14th to 16th a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, 
influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.